0: This is TechWave, a Gartner IT podcast. Greetings, everyone. I'm Francis Karamuzis. Welcome to TechWave, Gartner's podcast for IT leaders. For today's podcast, the topic for our discussion is labor volatility and global talent resilience. These are really loaded terms. We're going to explore them. We're going to unpack them. And for this topic, I've invited a special honored guest, Mr. Arkady Dopkin. Arkady is the CEO and founder of EPAM. Who's EPAM, you may be asking. EPAM is a service provider, in more pedestrian vernacular, a consulting firm, a systems integrator, or a managed services firm. In EPAM's case, and in my role as an industry analyst, I met Ark, which is uh, the name we all refer to him as, and started um, following EPAM about 20 years ago. And they interested me so much that I started to follow them on a more regular basis. And the reason they were an interesting company is they were one of the earliest sort of pure play digital engineering companies in their sector. And we'll hear more about that. Um, So EPAM has been around for about 30 years and they went public in around 2012. Why is all of that important to this topic? It's important because service providers' most precious asset is their people, and of course, their intellectual property. So for the topic of labor volatility and global talent resilience, it's quite interesting to look at companies who absolutely rely almost entirely on their people, more specifically billing out their people in the form of consulting or modern engineering. Hence, I'm confident that by the end of this podcast, and I think you'll agree, EPAM is such a particularly interesting case study for this particular topic. Uh, so with that, I'm honored to have Arcadia as our guest. Welcome, Ark.
1: Thank you for the invitation, friend. Always great to connect. And uh, this is probably my first podcast. So you can tell that the topic is very important for me personally and for the IPAM as a company. So looking forward to having you in.
0: Fantastic, well then we're doubly honored if this is your inaugural uh, podcast. So let me set the stage for our conversation about labor volatility and global talent resilience. Everybody's likely heard all these stats and this data about workforce issues, the great resignation, uh, remote work, hybrid work, all that stuff. In our opinion, and specifically in my research, The topic of labor volatility goes far beyond that. As I study and I research a lot of service providers and buyers of services and consulting and outsourcing and managed services, and I think about this topic, it's important for me to share that labor volatility in my my studies is not just about the acquisition of people or how many open requisitions you have to hire certain people or how many months they've been outstanding and you've been unable to fill positions. So it's not about volume. Um, And of course, all these numbers and these stats are super important. And there's lots of people talking about these in the circles of human resources. However, labor volatility goes deeper than that. It's collectively something that hits the CEO's office. This is how he, she, or they, the CEO and the C-suite really think about it. This is how it manifests in their world. They talk about labor volatility because they're actually talking about there's an insufficient skill set or inconsistent or uninterrupted or interrupted delivery. um, And it's across a minimum required demand or a certain minimum quality or elapsed time. So those three elements, you know, fulfilling demand, keeping quality, elapsed time, that all of that set of skill sets in my mind goes into labor volatility so it's not just about acquiring people so with all of those variables if when you really get knee deep into this topic it also refers to team-based structures exactly what um arcadia's teams do they have to synergistically and collaboratively work together across uh regions of the world and they need you know tools that are gonna enable all of them. So Gartner has lots of research on this stuff and we're talking about things like fusion teams and democratized delivery. But the reason I invited ARC to this important conversation is that his company, EPAM, was thrust into the most volatile labor situation that you can imagine, at least that I can think of in my 25 years as an analyst or even 50 years of history. Um, so with that, Um, We're going to use this podcast to profile his particular company, almost like a case study about labor volatility and global talent resilience. So in order to provide a little bit of context, uh, Ark, can you give us a little general high level snapshot about EPAM?
1: Sure. Uh, EPAM was started in the United States in 1993 as a software engineering services company, But from the very beginning, we started to penetrate talent from Eastern Europe. And uh, for the first uh, practically 10 years of our existence, that was the majority of our talent pool. Over the years, we started to grow and add additional locations, but uh, Belarus, Ukraine, Russia was a core of our delivery capacity, Uh, adding... Experience consulting, adding business consultancy on the top of what we were doing. We started to play uh, and compete with uh, very large global outsourcing companies and consulting companies. And over years, we were growing on average 25, 30% per year. And with this, today we are approaching 5 billion in revenue and uh, over 60,000 people globally. And I seem considering one of the few pure play digital providers of the market of IT services.
0: Fantastic. Thanks, Ark. So that really helps us put a little bit of context. So Ark is in the United States. He's running his company. Like many global organizations, he has lots of different people across the world. In his case, he's got a big concentration in um, both uh, all three uh, locations, Russia, Belarus, and the Ukraine, that were all impacted, so that kind of sets the stage. As an analyst who follows this market pretty closely, I can safely say, because I've been following EPAM for over 20 years, that things were going well. There was lots of growth over the years, lots of good clients and growth of clients, lots of opportunities for different people. Um, And then all of us got swept up in the worldwide pandemic. COVID hit. EPAM, like many other companies in its sector, was navigating the complexities of that COVID shift that demanded almost like an instantaneous uh, switch from fully remote operations over to fully remote operations. And based on some of Gartner's research, you know, EPAM was one of the leading firms that was navigating that change pretty well. So that was all, you know, pretty good. But if that wasn't jarring enough for all of us, the real tectonic volatile event that occurred in February 2022 was Russia invaded the Ukraine and the war began. So at that point in time, EPAM had about 30,000 people um, in Belarus, Russia, and Ukraine. Um, More specifically in the Ukraine, EPAM had about 14,000 people and all totaled over 50% of his company which was about 61,000 were somehow impacted. So with that kind of sort of more quantitative look, let me turn it over to you Ark. Tell us a little bit about how EPAM had to pivot and what was that big sort of effort around relocating your talent.
1: Uh yeah, so, and I think and I think to explain it I would go a little bit to the history, not too long history but As you mentioned, we did APO in 2012, 10 years ago. And at this point, we have 85% of our people between Ukraine, Russia, and Belarus. And the whole company was a little bit more than 7,000 people back then versus 60,000 today. So during these 10 years, we actually purposely were trying to globalize a And over time, we opened additional development centers outside of this region, outside of these three countries in Central Eastern Europe. We also started operation in India, in Latin America, in Iraq. So we were thinking that we're doing fine and going with a speed which allows us to do it uh, well and correctly. Also, we were thinking pretty good because back in 2017, we triggered a special initiative which we called IPAM Anywhere to adapt our internal digital platform to support highly distributed work across our global teams and allow people to work in any locations which were not prohibited. Practically completely independently from traditional office establishment, which we might have a didn't have in specific regions. So right before COVID, we were thinking that uh, about 5% of our people will be working in these settings by the end of 2020. And uh, just to find out a couple months later, that practically the whole company were utilizing this infrastructure uh, across all locations. Also, a little bit later in 2021, we got to another challenge related to Belarus. And Belarus, at this point, was our largest location with 12,000 people, where political disarray um, created the conditions where we started to relocate people and adding an additional functionality to to our digital platforms. And that was thousands of people and their families. So, and with all of this, by the end of 2021, just to illustrate, our revenue went up 50%, something which we did last time a decade ago. We also got third time on the Fortune 100 fastest company list, and we included in the S&P 500 index. So, with all these challenges, we were performing pretty well. And again, thinking we were doing fine even with all of these situations.
0: Okay. So if I captured all of that correctly, if we backtrack about 10 years ago in 2012, you had 85% of your people concentrated in Belarus, Russia, Ukraine. You then started on this journey. You implemented a lot of some really interesting strategies because you wanted to slowly get that um, on, a, on a rational level down. So you got it down to about 69% and around 2015. And then if I got my numbers right, you went down to about 57% or thereabouts in 2021. So by any standard in the industry, that kind of uh, people pivot is quite amazing. And as a Gartner analyst who kind of covers the services industry and knowing the market, um, the simultaneous growth rate of people over time and your revenue um, and growing clients is pretty best in class um, by both industry you know, standards and probably financial circles. So your stock price kind of reflected that at the time. So now, um, now we're in the tail end of 2021. We're going into 2022. Now this unbelievable set of circumstances hit. So tell us, Ark, what happened at that point?
1: Yes, like while we were thinking that we prepared for a new way of working, like uh, and while we were thinking that we understand the region pretty well, uh, the war started was completely shock for us. And with all these successes and doing fine, kind of, we found ourselves with more than 50% of our talent in actually impacted region with, uh, as you mentioned already, around 14,000 people in Ukraine. So practically the next morning after war started, our management team uh, got together and we started to accelerate everything possible to utilize available information. And again, thanks to platforms which we were building for the last couple of decades thanks for this preparedness and thanks for the training which we kind of were in force okay. during the 2020 and 2021 in belarus we very quickly added additional functionality to track employees to understand where they are starting to help them to relocate inside of the country and uh, establishes established processes how to help people who relocating more permanently from Ukraine and from Russia and Belarus to support the whole necessary uh, business continuity processes. So we established special fast track efforts and we also have to make a decision about exiting Russia completely. And to understand the impact on on the company at this point, we had at the End of 2021, beginning 2022, about 9,000 production people in Russia. So, what's happened actually during the last five months with all these efforts? We changed the number from 57% dependency on these three countries to under 40% just last month. And we also accelerated hiring outside of the region, tremendously utilizing the platforms and practices which uh, we used before strictly for Eastern Europe. We're starting to grow much faster in India. We are starting to grow much faster in Western Asia, relocate some people in Eastern Europe and created special kind of hubs to grow locally. In general, on top of this, we help relocate inside of the Ukraine for about 6,000 our people plus thousands of their family members. Uh, On top of this, we were maintaining the quality of delivery very much in line with pre-war conditions across the whole company and specifically in Ukraine and other countries under relocation efforts. So just to illustrate our utilization were not impacted. So it was still mid 80s, exactly like it was before the war. Based on measurement of productivity efforts, we were in line or in Ukraine actually, our productivity metrics were even higher. And it's difficult to quantify productivity in general, but uh, we have um, multiple components of this based on the specific client engagement. And again, no impact on client work were visible during this whole period of very, very difficult five months.
0: So with that, let me just kind of recap, because this is like such an incredible sort of story. With 30 years of, of history, in a country like Russia and Belarus, like many other organizations in the world, um, you shut down your operations. But unlike many other organizations, you had to move all of those people because you had clients depending on them. And more importantly, it really changed, if you will, the look, the feel, the face of your company um, given its history. So that's an incredible feat in and of itself. But as an industry geek and analyst, I'm also listening to your utilization and your productivity story. Um, So for those who aren't aware, one of the biggest performance metrics um, that uh, services companies are measured on is utilization. What is utilization? It's kind of the percentage of the billable work hours um, over the total work hours. So to give you a pedestrian example, um, an employee is being paid by EPAM or any other company. Um, to work a certain number of hours in a given day or a week. So during that time, they might be doing some training. They might be doing some learning uh, of a new competency. They might be participating in internal meetings. They might be traveling somewhere. All of that is not billable time, but obviously is very important to the health, the well-being, the growth of that particular um, employee. And that's how you sustain a high level of quality. So all of those things are important, but they're not actually billable. So there's no revenue coming into the company. So every company in the space has to maintain a certain healthy level of utilization um, for both the employees' well-being and also the company's top-line revenue. So um, EPAN is, is sort of recounting this incredible story. And what they're really, what was the, Um, statistic that really dumbfounded many analysts is that they maintained a a consistent set of utilization rates that were the same as what they had pre-war, the same as that they had pre-COVID, so that was pretty incredible. On top of that, they also, one way that you maintain um, as well your quality delivery um, is productivity, and um, in this case, EPAM has lots of developers, So productivity in the application development and engineering space is super important. And here again, um, they maintained a pretty consistent level of of productivity, not just as a whole, as a company, but also with their employees from the Ukraine. Um, So that was uh, pretty amazing. So those two measures or key performance indicators of any um, services company held steady in such a tumultuous time. So when I look at that, I have to ask you, Ark, what's the secret sauce? How are you able to do this?
1: First of all, we attribute it to our product or engineering DNA. The second, and I mentioned this a couple of times, it's about our investments in IPAM digital ecosystem or platforms, which in turn allow us as a company to operate as a platform as well. And this is investments for last few decades. And finally, I think in our business with everything changing, and you were talking about it how services industry changing, how requirements for the talent changing. I think continuous focus on education and upskilling for people inside of and outside of the plan, because we are actually making Large impact on communities in the countries which we, which we operate was, I think, this probably the third most important component for what's happening with us.
0: Hmm. Okay, so um, let's unpack each of those things. So if I heard you correctly, uh, one was engineering DNA. The second was your platform and actually the technology, but then you know taking that technology and and being a platform business, if you will. And then the third one was educating and upskilling people. So let's take each one of those at uh, one at a time. Let's start with engineering DNA. Tell us exactly what you mean by that and why you think it's important.
1: Uh, sure. So I think uh, we believe that our engineering DNA coming from practically our first 10 or 15 years of existence, when we focus primarily on serving the clients which were coming from professional software product industry. Let's say 15 years back, our largest clients were indeed SIP and oracles of the world. On top of dozens and dozens of smaller product companies, mostly in enterprise space, and many, many startups which were testing new type of technologies and new ways to solve uh, emerging business problems and we were helping them to build and develop these products and at the same time we were building and developing our company and talent inside of the company and in some way, the culture of our company very much in line with requirements and quality requirements coming from such clients we were inheriting many ideas how to manage very specific engineering talent and we were enhancing this because we were seeing a big spectrum of how different companies doing this and what's successful or not. And uh, I think the whole character of the company we should build was based on this engineering DNA. Okay,
0: that's interesting. So we call these big companies like SAP and Oracle and the Googles of the world and the Facebooks of the world and Microsofts and all of those big. Um, if you will, tech companies. Um, we call them digital dragons, right? Because they've forced all of us into a new way of working. They've sort of opened the doors to a lot of different things. So if I understand you correctly, your engineering DNA is those companies who were quite demanding are your clients. So you your original client base were a lot of these kinds of companies, both small ones and large ones, But because they were so demanding and they had a very different kind of engineering DNA, you sort of took the best of the best of that, saw what worked, what didn't work, and you've adopted that into your organization. And that's one of that kind of, if you will, ability to uh, pivot, to be fairly malleable and to, while maintaining a certain level of rigor, is kind of one of the parts of your secret sauce. Now let's go to the second one. I think you called it platforms and sometimes have been referred to as running your organization as a platform business. So tell me how platforms manifested in EPAM and how long did it take to build and, and what is what, what exactly did that contribute as part of your secret sauce?
1: Yeah, you exactly summarized correctly what was happening with us and it's very much related to the second part of Uh, our differentiations related to platforms. Because what's happened when we were developing solutions for the software companies in very pure product engineering engagements, uh, we also inherited, and yes, we were working with Google and Expedia's of the World as a client, which is platform business. So we also realized that we as engineers have capability to solve our internal business problems with software solutions. And 20 years ago, when we started to run to highly distributed, and we were probably one of the pioneers which were doing complex product engineering in very highly distributed situations with teams spread it across multiple locations, we realized that there is no good platforms, software to support this process. And we started to build our... Our own as the engineers so there is connectivity between these things and then we when we have to scale we realize that we need like to cover not only engineering part of the not only like quality control of the what's happening but actually started to pay attention to people part of this to recruitment to talent management and we realize that there is no actually good software packages on the market which covering in integrated way All of this for the companies like EPAM, which need to hire like thousands or tens of thousands of people, which need to retrain them, which need to monitor from different components the performance of this, create with the different plans how to improve people, and all of the things. We practically build internal software lab to develop platforms which we utilize internally. And that's a continuous effort and very much similar to some of our clients, which you mentioned, like Google's and uh, experience of the world or Ubers of the world and allow us to, through this platform development, create completely different connectivity inside of the company and efficiency as well. And as I mentioned, big portion of this really was helping us to navigate the last year's challenges.
0: All right. So platform, um, a platform and a platform business. Um, quite interesting that it uh, you've taken um, things that didn't exist. So I was kind of there, if you will, or, or an observer, I'll just say, um, when Agile first came out in the market. So I'm kind of dating myself, but the concepts that you're talking about was to actually do agile development in a distributed fashion and to do it for our product engineering and those tools didn't exist so even back then you actually developed a lot of those tools for yourselves and had grown those to a point where you had really reached a a pretty high best-in-class plateau if you will of how to do this distributed nature of um, building um, software, doing product engineering, and now you had to put it to work in its toughest form, obviously, because you reached this very volatile event. So that definitely sounds like a pretty difficult uh, secret sauce item to replicate because it takes years, Um, but it's uh, good to know that it's doable. So now let's go to the last item which is education and sort of upskilling. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that. How does uh, EPAM um, invest in education and what are your kind of approaches to upskilling your people?
1: Yeah, based on the previous two points, like our engineering DNA and platform build up, like you understand that it's a very different requirement for the capabilities and engineering maturity for this type of task and for this type of client, which we had. And at some point we started to understand that what's happening in locations where we operate with education of engineering education, uh, it's not good enough for what we need to grow and scale. And more than 15 years ago, we started to think how we can improve it. And we started to come to universities and offer them special classes, and then uh, we built relationship with probably hundreds of universities across all our locations. And on top of this, starting to develop our own educational division for internal use, but also for the communities of talented people or people who have enough hungriness to go to IT or software engineering and uh, started to train. So first it was small efforts. Then it's turned to be the situation that we're training each year tens of thousands of people, even if we recruiting from them only 30%, 40%. Then we realized that we can enhance traditional university programs as well and starting to build some commercial components of professional boot camps specifically for the quality which we need. And eventually, when some clients saw it by accident, they started to ask us to help them with the internal stuff and upgrading their own skills. So, which all turned to kind of continuous learning culture inside of a palm and continuous education for external market to scale us and to help our clients sometimes to work with us more efficiently as well.
0: Right, fantastic. So we've talked about all of the elements of your secret sauce. We've now sort of been focusing a lot on internally your people, your platforms, your how you skill people. So now I kind of save my best and question and my loaded question for last, which is let's talk about your clients um, through such a big move, through such uh, labor volatility, um, and you know we obviously focused on the three big countries where you shifted a lot of people out, but at the start of this when I was kind of giving a description and you were giving a description, uh, I think we mentioned that uh, you, you actually operate in about 50 countries. And so with all of that in mind um, and serving all these clients from around the world, um, tell me what actually happened with you know your client base?
1: Yes, yeah, so this is an interesting question. And uh, I can mention that uh, when war started, we had a lot of concerns and clients who had a lot of concerns and we were having a lot of questions, how are you going to navigate all this destruction? Through all these efforts, which we mentioned, what I can say is that we didn't lose any single client from probably top 100 we had. At least I don't know about it. So some clients, like top 20, practically growing with us at least with the same speed like before before the war. So we exited Russia. That was a decision which we made. But rather than that, I think the client trust in us only increased. And I think the... Kind of confirmation of this would be that in Q2, which is, was a quarter when we were under war 100%, we still grew way over 30%, and we cannot say exactly how the year will be finished. But uh, industry analysts, which watching us, uh, put it. with uh, about 30% growth for us this year, which is very much in line to what's happening with us uh, in business as usual situation. So I think that's probably answering your question.
0: Yes, it did. Indeed. That's a pretty notable um, uh, and almost astounding kind of statistic because when you retain clients in the services industry, it's very different. And it's unlike, you know, software contracts or SaaS contracts, you know, that have a subscription basis or multi year contracts where there's some kind of vendor lock in and clients can't just come and go and and leave. But in consulting and in systems integration and this kind of um, sort of services work, um, it's much harder. While, of course, as contracts in place, um, it's, uh, you know, the decision to leave a vendor um you know happens I'll just say generally uh more often in this industry than it does on the in the software industry so when you tell me you went uh, uh you experienced this kind of volatility came through it had 30% growth and actually didn't lose uh a client in your top 100 um that takes you know quite a bit of, of work so indeed i can now safely share with the audience here that this is a case study in global talent resilience. And I know we kept this conversation pretty sanitized. Um, we didn't get into the politics or, or the war in Ukraine or all these other kinds of things. But you know, when you actually look at the industry vernacular, if you will, and we talk about talent, the term talent has kind of been stretched to go beyond humans to augmented humans and bots and augmented automation and hybrid talent and all kinds of stuff however there's still no denying that managing human talent is much more complex much more unpredictable than any other form of those other kinds of talent humans need to be you know they need to flourish in order to be retained you can't just talk about compensation you need to kind of feed their spirit their energy their passion and you need to enable them to work in high performing teams with the right tools and the right IP. Um, So as such, you can't just simply move them um, like you would move software or you would move data to a different server or to the cloud. You need to deal with their family obligations, their language requirements, their visa status, their cultural affinity, where they want to live. In short, shifting labor isn't mechanical. It's organic. Um, And to do it in this shorter period of time, um, that's pretty incredible. So on that important note, we're gonna close today's podcast. And I wanted to thank my esteemed guest and our newly dubbed Talent Resiliency Pioneer, Mr. Um, Katie Dopkin from EPAM. And I'll invite all of you to further explore this topic because we're doing a presentation at uh, Gartner Symposium in Orlando. And I'll, present, I'll be presenting this case study and exploring this topic in more detail. Thank you. Please subscribe and share the episode with your colleagues. Thank you for listening. Gartner Podcasts are a production of Gartner, the world's leading research and advisory company, equipping executives across the enterprise with indispensable insight, advice, and tools to achieve their mission-critical priorities. You can learn more at Gartner.com. All content in Gartner Podcasts is owned by Gartner, and cannot be repurposed or reproduced without Gartner's consent. Gartner is an impartial independent analyst of business and technology. This content should not be construed as a Gartner endorsement of any enterprise's product or services. All content provided by other speakers is expressly the views of those speakers and their organizations.